Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 190 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Major Bill Ray and his career as a psychic spy. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. From the 1970s to the 1990s, the U.S. Defense Department conducted a psychic spying program that came to be known as Stargate. It was headquartered out of Fort Meade, Maryland, and relied on a psychic ability called remote viewing. One of the psychic spies who served at Fort Meade was Major Bill Ray. For a time, he also served as commander of the unit. So who is Major Ray? What role did he play in Stargate? And what can he tell us about remote viewing? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what should we say to begin? First, I'm very happy to be able to do this interview. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Paul Smith, who listeners will remember from episodes 156 and 157, where we interviewed him about his own career in Stargate. Paul very kindly put me in touch with Bill Ray, so I wanted to say thanks to him. Also, this will be a two-parter. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Major Ray about his career with the remote viewing project, as well as some about how remote viewing is thought to work. Then we'll arrive at a bit of a cliffhanger where I start to ask him about the most terrifying remote viewing experience he ever had, which involved a massive simultaneous UFO abduction. So you'll want to listen again next week to find out all about that. But there's lots of good stuff we'll be covering this week. What things should people be listening for in today's interview with Major Ray? He mentions the names of a few men that you may want to be aware of. Early in the interview, he mentions a man named Skip Atwater. Atwater originally reported to Bill, but he went on to play a key role in founding the Stargate program, and he recruited Bill into it. Later, he mentions Major General James Dozier, who in 1981 was living in Verona, Italy, when he was kidnapped by the Italian Red Brigade, a communist terrorist group. The terrorists held General Dozier in Padua, Italy. In the interview, Bill pronounces Padua a couple of ways, but it's Padua, as in St. Anthony of Padua, that we're talking about. He also mentions Lieutenant General William Odom, who was a prominent critic of Stargate and opposed the program. So those are the names to listen for. Skip Atwater, James Dozier, and William Odom. In the interview, you discuss a couple of methods of doing remote viewing known as CRV and ERV. What are these? CRV is a method that was originally developed by Ingo Swan and Hal Putoff. If you want to hear about it, you can go back and listen to episodes 102 and 103. In CRV, you use a series of up to six structured stages to try to retrieve information about a target that you've been assigned to view. You're typically blind to the target, meaning you don't know what it is, but you're supposed to be able to psychically obtain impressions of the target, what it looks like, and so forth. 
forth. Originally, the initials CRV stood for coordinate remote viewing because you were given the geographical coordinates, the longitude and latitude of the target. But today, the initials stand for controlled remote viewing. And as we'll hear, Major Ray played a key role in jettisoning the geographical coordinates from the technique. And what about ERV? ERV stands for extended remote viewing. In an ERV exercise, you lie down, relax, and try to get to the point where you're almost asleep, but not quite. While in this relaxed state, you try to acquire psychic impressions of the target. ERV is more of a freeform method and doesn't use the same series of six controlled stages that CRV does. Major Ray was trained by Ingo Swan in CRV, but after he started working at Fort Meade, he began doing ERV as well. So those are some of the basic things people should be listening for. Not all of our listeners may be familiar with remote viewing. Where should they go for more information? We've discussed remote viewing a number of times on the program, but one of the best places to go is back to episodes 102 and 103, where we covered the basics. In those episodes, we looked at the scientific evidence concerning remote viewing, so you can make up your own mind of whether you find it credible. We also covered it from the faith perspective. And for more on the faith perspective, you may wish to check out episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult, where we discussed the fact that even saints and doctors of the church, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, believed that God built weak natural abilities into human nature that we would today classify as psychic abilities. So listen to 105 and 106 for a detailed look at the faith perspective on psychic and other unusual phenomena. Before we get to the interview with Major Ray, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Fonseca B., Mary C., Jeffrey M., Richard H., and Michael F. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And without further ado, here's part one of our interview with Major Bill Ray. Bill Ray is a veteran of five wartime tours in Iraq, Kuwait, and Afghanistan. He is a retired Army major and Department of Defense civilian with more than 50 years of combined federal government service as an intelligence and counterintelligence offer. He is one of five Stargate military remote viewers trained by Hal Putoff and Ingo Swan, the developers of remote viewing. After Joe McMonagall's departure, Bill became the primary remote viewer using extended remote viewing, or ERV, at the Fort Meade unit while continuing to work operational and training targets using controlled remote viewing, or CRV. From 1985 to 1987, he served as the commander of the Fort Meade Psychic Spying Unit. He has a bachelor's degree in history from the State University of New York and a master's degree in international relations from the University of Southern California. He currently resides in Wisconsin. Welcome to the program, Major Ray. 
Thank you, Jimmy. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you also for your service to our country. You're welcome. It's a privilege to serve. Can you tell us about your background, uh, what it was like growing up, your family, what you were doing before the uh, before uh, the your RV career, things like that? Uh, okay, I uh, I'm the oldest of seven children. Uh, I was born in Santa Monica, California, before the war, World War II. I I had uh, two brothers, four sisters. I'm eight years older than the next oldest one because of the war. Dad went away, and Mom had several problems after that. Attended Catholic school, raised by the nuns for the first eight years. And through high school, I was taught by the brothers of St. Patrick. All of them were from the old sod. After graduation, I went in the military, ended up in in the infantry. Airborne paratrooper, volunteered and got accepted into ranger school, graduated from that. Uh, when my tour was time of service was up, I got out of the Army. I still had reserve time to do a little obligation. Went to work at a grocery wholesaler, started unloading boxcars, then moved into the office. Met my wife, Sandy Glenn, in a... <laughs> Uh, we got married. Uh, I missed the Army, went back into the Army, uh, ended up in the MPs briefly, uh, volunteered for military intelligence, got accepted. They sent me to German language school, ended up in Germany, came back, went to officer candidate school at the time. I was a staff sergeant. Going through OCS, officer candidate school, I was almost 33. Next oldest person in the class was 26. Uh, halfway through the course, they they uh, dropped the age limit to uh, 26 to be commissioned. So I was grandfathered in, but if anything happened, it couldn't be recycled. So as a result, I became literally the oldest lieutenant captain and major in the Army for uh, a well. After OCS, I went back to Fort Huachuca, taught at the school, where uh, one of the people working for me was uh, Skip Atwater. He was a staff sergeant at the time. And another person was uh, Rob Hartley. And they were my two uh, NCOs. I talked them both into going to officer candidate school. Uh, I sent Skip Atwater to OCS. Uh, he went away to Fort Benning, came back to uh, Fort Huachuca, they were required to go through uh, the basic officer course. So Skip went through. I instructed him in a couple of courses. When he was getting ready, uh, he came down on orders for Fort Meade as an OPSEC officer, which is a very boring job for a, uh, a counterintelligence officer. So uh, Skip and I went out, held one last beer together. I thought I would never see him again. I was a German linguist. Skip was a Spanish linguist, so uh, our careers probably weren't going to cross over later. Skip went to Fort Meade, and that, that's how the project eventually got started. He, he uh, was doing operational security of units, addressing their problems, how they could be more secure. And uh, one of the commanders there, I believe it was a colonel, asked him, uh, he'd seen a program on Soviet remote viewing and wanted to know how he could protect himself against that. 
Skip brought her back, went up and asked the commanding general of the Intelligence and Security Command, who told him to research it. He did, figured out kind of how to do it. Started off, actually, the project for me started off as a defensive project. People don't know. It rapidly uh, morphed into a, uh, a collection activity. And you joined uh, the Fort Meade program in 1984. How did that happen? Did you get a call from Skip? Or I'm pretty sure they don't have Uncle Sam wants you to be a psychic spy poster. Unfortunately not. No. Strange enough, uh, I went to Germany after teaching at the intelligence course. Skip was out at Fort Meade. I went to Germany, uh, spent a year in Munich. They had a command slot open up in Augsburg for the counterintelligence field office for Western Barbaria. I put him forward and was chosen. I spent three years up there, and then I went back to uh, to the captain's course. So I was going at a very late date to the captain's court skip. Ended up going to the same course, and we ended up because we both had a lot of kids living across the street from each other. So we got back in contact. Obviously, the uh, the project at the time was a, was a special access program, abbreviated to SAP. So we could, he couldn't tell me about it. But after, the, uh, after we both graduated from the course, I stayed at Wachuca, became the intelligence officer for a signal brigade for uh, about 18 months. My only non-counterintelligence, really non-civilian closed assignment except for combat assignments. Then Skip came out, talked to me one day from Fort Meade and uh, read me onto the program. I talked to my wife a little. I couldn't tell Sandy what it was about, but she, she agreed and we ended up at Fort Meade in January 3rd, 1984. After uh, you joined the program, you were then trained in remote viewing, uh, or specifically in what was then called coordinate remote viewing, later controlled remote viewing. You were trained by Ingo Swan. Uh, What was Ingo like, and what was the training like? What was he like as a teacher? Ingo was actually a a, uh, fantastic individual. uh, Our training varied. We would spend a couple of weeks out at San Francisco, Palo Alto, if you will, Stanford Research Institute. And then back at Fort Meade, we would spend every other week up in New York being trained by Ingo, and the following week down at Fort Meade and then back and forth. So we did that. There were four of us in my group, and then there was Tom McNair, who would be going the, the odd week. He started before we did. He started with Rob Hartley. The, uh, who would also work with me was Skip, and I uh, also sent to OCS. I actually got rid of all my best instructors working for me, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, Rob came down with with cancer and uh, ultimately passed away. So uh, Tom was on his own, and the four of us—Charlene Schufelt, myself. Paul Smith and Ed Dames were the traveling team going back and forth. Now, from the reading I've done and also some personal knowledge, Mm -hmm. the four of you can, well, Ingo himself seems to have been a kind of colorful character. Yes, Um, very. He he could be a little abrupt. He had a lot of interesting uh, ideas. 
and and you know any any time a person reads about Ingo, they'll encounter that kind of stuff. Yeah. In reading about your training group, the four of you, uh, yes. Bill Ray, Ed Dames, Paul Smith, and Charlene Schufelt, then Charlene Cavanaugh. Yes. At least three of you seem to be a little colorful your, yourselves. Now, Charlene, <laughs> I've never heard anybody say she was particularly, she seems the most even keeled in some ways. At in least, some ways she was, yes. She yeah. was kind of an odd man out in some ways. Uh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned Ingo. Ingo was terrifying. Uh-huh. Yes, well, tell me about Ingo first then. I dearly loved Ingo, but Ingo was very scary when he was down sitting at the young the other end of the table and when something just wouldn't come yeah it was very he'd be frustrated i'd be frustrated and it uh, <laughs> just kind of went from there but uh i i learned early on to volunteer to be the first person to go in and i would go in and get it out of the way i i did well by Partly because of Ed and Paul, mainly mainly Ed Dames, uh, because Ed would, was always getting Ingo mad, so that, that that got him off my back. And when Ed didn't, Paul seemed to have a tendency to to rile Ingo too, not not as bad as Ed did. But that was that was very interesting. Actually, Ed Dames is is probably the most left brain person you will ever meet. And that's an issue in remote viewing because the idea is you want to diminish what your analytical right brain functions are in order to let the intuitive right brain information come through from the target. Yes, perfectly. And Ed had to have closure every day. And and I am not exaggerating when I say when I came into work in the morning, when Ed came in, he'd need to go outside and we'd talk. And he would literally tell me the meaning of life. And then we'd go in. And the next day, it would happen again. He had got some more information the previous day. So he would tell me the meaning of life. And it became pretty much a a rite of passage day. Every morning, Ed would tell me the meaning of life. Because he had gotten some more information the day before, so he had to have closure on that. So his understanding of the meaning of life kept changing from day to day. Yes, yeah, a little each time. Uh-huh. Now, I, I would think the first three weeks of training with Ingo, we didn't do remote viewing. Ingo basically gave us a a history of uh, of. Uh, psychic research going back to the 14th, 15th century father and providing, if not a scientific, at least a pseudo-scientific background for remote viewing, which uh, I think Ed had to have with his left brain. Paul, that's kind of a scientific man at times too, though he's very right brain. So he needed that. Charlene could care less. I'm Irish. If you told me it's magic, then, you know, we could have saved three weeks. <laughs> In So among the four of you, uh, at least two, Ed Dames and Paul Smith, have written books. And they both have characterizations of what you were like at, uh, when they first met you. Mm-hmm. In Ed Dames's book, Tell Me What You See, he says this. He says, Ray, meaning you, yes. was 
was also a Californian like me, a smooth counterintelligence man straight out of central casting with his mustache and dark hair splashed with just the right amount of gray around the temples, a devoted pipe smoker with an equal devotion to beer and bad music. He insisted the hundred mile drive from Fort Meade to the Monroe Institute would be no problem for him, despite an agonizing back problem he had suffered years earlier in a parachute jump mishap. He was just happy to be there, he said. So was I, Ed says. So he gives a little bit of flavor for you there. Then Paul, in his book, Reading the Enemy's Mind says, Bill Ray showed up at Fred, that Skip Atwater's yep. uh, driveway, the first week in January, unfolding his lanky frame from the front seat of a black Subaru station wagon out of the tailgate and every other door of the small car, kids erupted. The Rays were a large, happy family. So he he, he mentions, uh, I've heard Paul on other occasions mention he doesn't know how that you got that many kids in the car. <laughs> how, how many was it at the time, by the way? Uh, uh, I think it was five at that time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then a little bit later on, Paul writes that in 1987, some old hands were preparing to leave. One of the first to go at the end of June was Bill Ray with orders for Europe in hand. We were going to miss Bill's fedora hat and omnipresent pipe, his optimistic outlook and jovial good sense. One thing we wouldn't miss, though, was his tendency to burst into off-key Irish songs at every opportunity. So oh, no. they've both they've both given uh, some good natured color descriptions there. I want to give you a chance to do the same for them, if you'd like. Ah, well, obviously, they are both musicators. <laughs> a very little taste when it comes to good music. Uh, with Ed, I never did go to the Monroe Institute. Oh. They went. In '83, no, that so may have been I my mistake. I, I yeah. may have, I may have had the. No, that was it. Yeah, Ed's book. He somehow remembers me going to the Monroe Institute, but I, I that was, I traveled down there while I was at Fort Meade and ran things down, and but I never attended the Monroe Institute, and when I went there, I always flew down. So, yeah, oh, Ed's a character. Ed and I, uh, Ed was the, the only one who I'd go out and have an Irish whiskey with. That, 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 yeah, Paul, being Mormon, doesn't drink. Uh, he'd be a much better drinking companion, I think, than Ed. But uh, yeah, at the time, uh, yeah, I was still drinking. I, uh, I quit drinking 30 years ago. Hasn't affected my voice. It's still beautiful. <laughs> but uh, Ed, once again, needing closure. Uh, has got himself into uh, some hot water with uh, recent predictions and those kind of things, which which haven't panned out. Uh, we have used of... Ed as a viewer, probably because of his uh, propensity to be so left brain. At least when I was there, when I commanded the gym, we did. Ed was uh, was a monitor and an analyst. Now, on on the unit. 
the monitors and the analysts, and they were yeah, basically uh, Ed Deems and uh, Gene Lesman when I was there. The way that so, would work for listeners who may not know is you'd have a remote viewer attempting to he'd be assigned a target. He wouldn't know what it was typically, and he would be trying to receive impressions of what's at the target site. And as he's engaged in that process, he would have another person sitting with him known as a monitor whose job was to prompt him and take notes and and things like that precisely yes and uh if several viewers were working the same target then the the monitor also was the analyst he had been with the viewers maybe uh gene and and, uh, and ed both were involved in the same project but in the end it was the monitor's job the as an analyst to put together a report for the customer. So uh, we'd be going home at 1630, 1700, and they'd be still there burning the night oil, putting reports together, analyzing what we had said. So uh, the, the viewers got the glory, but the, uh, the uh, true heroes, the, uh, the interior linemen of the, of the unit were, were the analyst monitors. And Ed uh, Dames functioned principally as a monitor. In later years, they yes. used him a little bit as a viewer, but he was mainly yep. a monitor. He's gotten, as you alluded uh, to, a kind of reputation for making doomsday predictions, not yes. all of which have happened since yeah. we haven't had that many doomsdays. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Tell me about Paul Smith. He is a kind of interesting guy, too. Now, you mentioned he's Mormon. Um, one of the things I know he's famous for is his particular cool-down method, where he would be getting ready to remote view. Yes. When Paul cooled down, it was the opposite of cooling down. He would go over to the operational building, put headphones on and play some very loud terrible rock music hard rock and that got him in the mood to go in and, and uh remote view once again I, I i've always questioned paul's taste in music <laughs> it does seem a bit unusual a guy who's this yes. somewhat mild-mannered mormon listening to heavy metal although he also says he would listen to country and some other things too but he has presented it as i was psyching myself up to do this yes i i can understand that there seems to be and no matter how many times you've remote viewed how you know if you have a string going of you know 20 hits in a row or a dozen hits in a row or three hits in a row there is that feeling that this is really impossible how can i do this and uh, i think almost right to speak for all viewers viewers have a a a a, a fear of failure when you go in it's it's uh i boxed in my youth and it was you know it was like what if i go in and get knocked out in 15 seconds that that and I, I suspect it's it's what a an actor feels when he goes on stage. What if I forget my lines? What if I and it's uh, boxing once you get it the first time it goes away. Remote viewing once you get the feeling you're on target it goes away. And I can't speak to actors. 
Now, you had been trained in coordinate remote viewing, or yes. CRV, but there was another methodology that was also being used at the Fort Meade unit known as extended remote viewing, or ERV. Yes. And the gentleman who, prior to you, had kind of specialized in this was named Joseph McMonagall, but he ended up transferring out of the unit in September of 1984, and the group didn't have uh, someone who was specializing in ERV, so you decided to. Um, yes. What is ERV and how were you trained in it? Ex extended remote viewing is a, uh, or is a CRV. You don't go into an altered state. You basically sit down with a pen in your hand and start recording and start writing, jotting down the, the, the site as it comes to you in varying steps and stages. Extended remote viewing, uh, you achieve a uh, altered state. Somebody could probably define that altered state, beta, delta, gamma, whatever, but you do achieve an altered state. You uh, you basically relax and yes, then let yeah. the psychic impressions come to you. Yes. So you're like be laying on a bed and or a couch or something and yes. relax deeply. It's sometimes been described as a mind awake, body asleep state where you're kind of on the fringe of falling asleep, but the goal is not to. I I equate it to skin diving scuba diving you're you're you have a threshold below and a threshold above if you come up too close back to consciousness you lose the sight and then you you may be able to regain it you may not if you go too deep i don't know where you go some people say you you, you you're falling asleep that's all it is i th i think you go someplace when you come back you don't recall but that's it's the thing with extended remote viewing. You have to have a monitor. It's very good to to uh, to take the session. When I when I got to the project, there's about twelve people, but two of them were secretaries. We had two secretaries because you had to transcribe Joe's session. And when you're in the the altered state, it's kind of like talking with a mouth full of uh, mush and marbles. And so it's, uh, and you would have to go through the tapes over and over again to get what he did. Because if you're trying to recall things, you may not pick up all the details. And so that's part of why it's especially important with ERV to have a monitor because yes. it it keeps the viewer from falling asleep or going off yes. track to have someone there interviewing him and posing the questions to him, which then get recorded or otherwise taken down since he's not yes. writing them the, himself. You know, the, uh, the viewer really is pretty much brainless. There's only one brain in the room. It should be the monitor. And, you know, you might say, okay, I'm here now. There's, uh, there's three buildings. And the monitor may say, which building's important? Well, I don't really know. So the monitor will then decide, okay, go into building number, first building on your right. And the viewer does that. And it's, but it's, you really aren't making good decisions. You may have a feeling this is important, but you need, you need somebody with a brain outside to guide you. Now, much of the time with controlled remote viewing or coordinate remote viewing, viewers will describe the impressions they're getting as being rather faint, kind of like a mm -hmm. half forgotten memory of, oh, yeah, I think that's what this site is like. Mm -hmm. It sounds like ERV is a much more immersive experience where you have a much greater 
perception of the site, like being there. Is that accurate? Uh, I, for me, that is correct. I, to me, and this is just Bill as remote viewing, CRV seems to me you're pulling information from the site. You're pulling the information in. ERV is you're going to the site and getting the information. I find ERV more exciting, and I'm kind of a adrenaline junkie, so I'd like it better. As a paratrooper, that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. The So it's kind of like an out-of-body experience or similar to that. Yeah, it's similar to that, but... But you're uh, still you're still feeling like you're in your body and able to talk. Yes. Now, Joe McMonagle also has done a lot of OBEs, out-of-body experiences. But the thing is that you don't report back on OBEs. You can't be directed to go to a, a certain building or a, a certain area or tell me more about that. And when you come back, you may not recall everything that happened on the OBE. Now, you had been trained in CRV by Ingo and Hal. Yes. How were you trained in ERV? Well, interesting, I wasn't. I uh, After Joe had left, I, I, uh, I approached Skip on a Friday and said, we really could use another ERV or would give us more options. We'd have more resources. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to learn ERV. And Skip said, okay, Bill, we'll, let's start Monday. And I said, grand. So I came in Monday, pen and paper in hand, expecting to be trained. And we went over from the admin area, across the little walk over to the operational building. And I went in and did ERV. And there, the, there was no training. Now, I had watched Joe remote view, and Joe was hooked up to skin uh, galvanizers and other things. And uh, so when Joe was on, I knew what his body was doing. Uh, the, the polarity was reversed and other things. And I, I was there one time, and I was talking to Skip in the control room, and Joe was babbling on in, in a, uh, a viewing room. And I said, shouldn't we be listening? And he said, no, look here. Say he's been off target for 10 minutes. He just doesn't know it yet. So uh, I had learned how to make my body like Joe's body when he was viewing. So when I went in and I wasn't going to get any instruction, I, I did that. And after a while, I found the signal line. And the signal line in ERB is the same signal line in CRB. It feels the same. And that's kind of hard to explain. It, it feels stronger in ERB, I think, because you're in an altered state. Mm-hmm. We should and exp- I picked it up. We should explain for listeners, yes. this: the signal line is a, a way of conceptualizing the flow of information coming yes. to a viewer from the site. And so yes. if you are having an accurate flow of information, you're said to have found the signal line or to be yes. on signal. Yes. And uh, in CRB, the longer you do a session, the deeper you step one, uh, stage one is, is, is very big and it's stage one is the hardest one. But you do that, everything else is going to come, but you have to get that one down. And as you get in two, three, four, it feels much stronger. You know you're there. You know you're on target. Mm-hmm. You're on the, yeah, we call it riding the signal line. A metaphor, but it it fairly accurately describes the feeling you have when you're on target. Now, 
We mentioned the cooldown process where viewers getting ready to uh, to begin viewing, and we mentioned Paul Smith's preferred technique, yes. at least at the time, was to listen to music that he found invigorating. I know another of your colleagues, Tom McNear, who's a Protestant Christian, has yes. a prayer that he would say is his cooldown. You had these two methodologies of CRV and ERV. What did you use yep. as a cooldown? In, in CRV, I would do a fairly fast Hail Mary, you know, mm-hmm. concentrating on the Blessed Virgin, of course. Wouldn't want to get into the altered state. On ERV, I... I didn't call it at the time, but thinking back to it now, I I meditated mm-hmm. on the Hail Marys, three of them uh, very deeply, mm-hmm. and that seemed to get me into the altered state. So you were putting that wouldn't work for CRB because I'd be too far down. Mm-hmm. So you were putting your viewing sort of under Mary's mantle. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now. One of the things that often happens in ERV is is before a viewer will go to the target, as they're cooling down, they will go to a place in their mind that's sometimes called their sanctuary location. And then once they're in their sanctuary location, they'll be given the target and they'll proceed there. Yes. What was your sanctuary location? Okay, sanctuary was a uh, a concept that Gene Lesnar, also an Irishman born in Belfast, came up with. Uh, my sanctuary, I didn't know, for, uh, the idea was to keep it a secret. Or I'm not quite sure why, I think it was more psychological. I, I eventually figured out where it was. I had picked this place out of, it was a hillside, a little grotto, a lake behind it a lot of rain and I eventually was able to just go back up slowly. And I, I believe my, my sanctuary was in County Roscommon in Ireland. So you had a, yeah. a, a location that wasn't just an imaginary field or something, but something that was mm-hmm. an actual site on earth that you were then yes. able to identify. I, I went there and I felt comfortable. I still go there when I go to the dentist. <laughs> I, I imagine a lot of people would like to have a sanctuary location they could go yeah. to when they're at the well, dentist. Anybody can do it. <laughs> yeah. Just let you send your psyche out to find a spot you feel very comfortable in and then recall it when the start to drill. Yeah. One thing that ERVers are reported to be able to do frequently is interact with people who are at the target site. So they they'll yes. be viewing the site, they'll see somebody there and they'll be able to like go up to that person and ask them a question and get an answer. And presumably since they're not physically there, this would be like some kind of telepathy with the other person's subconscious perhaps or a way of giving yourself permission to receive certain information or or something like that. Um, have you had experiences like that? Uh, quite frequently. It was uh, one of the advantages of ERB. I think it's possible in CRB. We just haven't figured it out yet. You do it to some extent in stage four, but it, it's more or less grasping the emotional state of all the people at the site. But uh, at the site, uh, I was. they had me working... Uh, I eventually, you're not supposed to know where you're going because of imagination and all that. So it's usually 
at least signal uh, uh, single blind the viewer and quite frequently the monitor has no idea where you're going either. But I eventually figured they were sending me to the Kremlin once a, once a month or twice a month to just to monitor, see what was going on. It was uh, it's and, really uh, easy uh, to recognize the Kremlin. Right. All you just, this is the Kremlin. I didn't let them know I knew. And I met the, there was a a three star general there named Yuri who was a grandfather I quite liked and I would kind of sit in with him in the meetings. But uh, I went there one time. I think Gene was Gene Lesman was the monitor, and I got there and I, and I got to the building no problem. I couldn't find the room, and I had never had that problem before. And I probably was overthinking it, but now I'm psychically going through the halls of the Kremlin trying to find this room. And I can't. And Gene finally says, Bill, says, ask somebody. Okay. So I went down. There was a kiosk there, and they were serving tea and pastries. So I went up, and there was one guy sitting there. And I said, look, I, I need to get to this room. And he said, can you tell me where it is? And he says, not a lot. You can't go there. And I said, no, it's okay. And so I'm, I'm arguing with him that he can tell me where it is, and he's telling me it's not allowed. You can't go there. Don't. So I I leave him, and there's another guy standing there, and I say, I need to find this room. He said, oh, I'll take you. <laughs> right over here. So two different people, two different psyches. And one was, no way was he going to violate security. And the other, yeah, well, I'll help you out. But uh, And a lot of times, uh, I'll give you uh, an example of, uh, of Joe McMonagle. One of the sites he did when when General Dozer was captured, they were trying to figure out where General Dozer was being held. Uh, General Dozer was an American general who was in Italy and was kidnapped for a while right. by yes. terrorists, and he, he eventually was, was recovered. Right, he was actually not doing remote viewing, but uh, we could have. But so he was uh, he was a brigadier general. He was in Verona and uh, had been kidnapped by the uh, Rodemagata. Uh, Italian terrorist group. And this was before my time, but I, I read the reports. And actually, uh, DIA got some civilian remote viewers, flew into Italy, and was trying to help him find him, was running all around. At the time, the civilian remote viewers were very overrated, I think. But Joe was back at Fort uh, Meade, and he came up with find the place. So Joe went and actually found where Dozer was. But the problem is, where is he? Well, he's here, but where are you? So Joe had to figure out a way to find out where he was. So uh, he finally came up with Padua, Padilla, which is where actually the correct answer. But uh, asked Joe one time, how'd you come up? How'd you find that out? And he said, well, I went back 300 years found a church bishop and asked him who he was, and he would said, I'm the Archbishop of Padua, of Padilla. So not only did he go back 300 years, then he made contact with somebody who told him who he was, which creates a lot of interesting uh, ideas about the time and how it works. In late 1984, the Fort Meade program, which at the time was called Center Lane, was closed. 
and it began the process of transferring over to the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, During this time, you were the second in command at the Fort Meade unit, and you had a meeting with the Army Undersecretary James Ambrose and Lieutenant General William Odom, who was a prominent critic of the the program. He was not a fan. Can you tell us about that meeting? Yes, I think this was probably 85. Uh, Colonel Brian Busby had been the had been the commander, but had through no fault of his own, had some difficulties with DIA, basically because of, of political issues between DIA and the Army intelligence. So Brian was not going to go with the project when he left the Army. So I was taking over... Uh, I was almost a major. I think I was I was captain promotable probably a few weeks from being a major. But went went down to the Pentagon, and what we had is a red book, which has since disappeared. Nobody can find it. But the red book at that time listed every session, every project that we've been tasked with, and the results of that project. And then we had some some uh, old uh, examples of things we had done. And we would brief that, and uh, we like a briefing chart. Anybody that we briefed it to, we convinced, with the exception of General Odom. Uh, Odom wouldn't listen to it. So I went down with this General Odom. I was carrying this red book with me that I was going to brief. And I went in, said to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning. So I got to the Pentagon, went in, suit and tie, and everything. The secretary and she sends me to see General Odom. He says, "Appointments for three o'clock, fifteen hundred hours. Be back here at five minutes before." Yes, sir. So away I go, and I'm at the Pentagon all day, walking around carrying this secret briefing with me. And uh, I show up about fourteen thirty. There's no way I'm going to go five minutes before the meeting set. So I'm sitting there, and it's now fifteen ten, and we haven't left yet for Ambrose's office. So we're going to go down and brief, and. Uh, Finally, Odom comes out and he has the secretary call Ambrose's secretary because Ambrose was still in the meeting. So in the Pentagon, it's who waits on who who has the power. So when Ambrose is free, then so uh, eventually about 1530, his secretary called. So General Odom and I walked down the hallway and I'm thinking General Odom is the number one in intelligence general in the army. And normally you support your commander. But I wasn't in his command, and I already had 20 years in, I could retire. So uh, I figured, well, no, do I support him or am I honest? And I decided to be honest. So we go in, and we're <laughs> Ambrose is still in this meeting, so we sit down and wait for 10 minutes. General Odom's going crazy. So we go in, and we, we start the briefing, and I'm showing him things. And one of the things is the project had the highest success rate of any collection platform the, the military had or the civilians had at the time. Intelligence collection. Uh, yes, intelligence collection. We were at 50% of things we were, projects we worked on were rated by the customer as of exceptionally high value. And you know, that's, that's if you get 10% being of some value, you're doing okay after a collection. But anyhow... So we went in and I uh, sat down and we got there and uh, I briefed Odom. Uh, Odom was there and he did his spiel about the, that you know, the army is not the place for it and all that. 
So I showed him, the first one I showed him was uh, one of the things Joe McMonagle had worked on was the Typhoon Submarine, which was uh, a fantastic success for Joe. This was and, the uh, Typhoon and Submarine was a Russian submarine that was really quiet that was being developed in secrecy yes. by the Russians. And one of Joe McMonagall's tasks was to describe it. And he was able to do that yes. despite the fact it was in a sealed building in Russia. Yep. We were tasked, and the uh, the CIA came back and said that, that we missed the target because Joe said it was this huge submarine, and they weren't sure it was a submarine. It had this huge tail, which no submarine ever had, and it had a bunch of missile tubes, and they were cantered at an angle. And uh, missile tubes uh, on the submarine are all straight up and down to fire you know, Tomahawk missiles or whatever. So they said we missed it. And plus, it wasn't right on the water. Then six months later, they started dealing a trench and they, the typhoon came out and we were right on. So I, uh, I I briefed that and the general said, well, let me explain. He said, we could verify that six months later. So we didn't really need them. I said, well, you know, intelligence is to get as many sources as you can. So I gave him something else that we were the sole source. We're the only one reported on. Orton says, well, we don't know if that's correct because they're the sole source. So I sarcastically said, well, we're, you know, if we're one of many reporting, then that's not good. And if we're the only one reporting, that's not good. So they said, yeah. I said, okay. So I had a bunch of letters from people who uh, were supporting the project. One uh, at the time, Bill Gates was the acting director of CIA. William O. Casey had died, who we, we briefed earlier. But I had the... Uh, from general officers, uh, general officer level civilians, I gave all these letters to Ambrose, which uh, Odom didn't know I had. These were supportive so, letters uh, testifying to the value of what the program was doing. Yes, that this is this is worth keeping. So Odom says, "Well, sir, I can explain that." And I was wondering how he was going to do that, and it was that the people want to maintain access to this technology and. So they're willing to say anything to do that. So if they're willing to do anything to maintain access to, to technology, it must be worth something. If you're saying they're willing to lie to keep it, that didn't go over well. And I left and we got kicked out of the Army and had to pick another agency, which DIA was not a certainty. The, the CIA had wanted us, uh, NSA had wanted us, uh, and the medical R&D community had wanted us. And I, I eventually settled on DIA, uh, which is good, because had we gone over to NSA, Odom came over six months later and became the, the director of NSA. Uh, I was worried the medical research command They'd be shoving tubes down our throat and any place else they could put tubes to see why we work. Uh, CIA would have been probably preferable at the time, but they had just mined the harbors in Nicaragua and they couldn't take any more controversy, they thought. So we ended up over at DIA. Jack Berlin from DIA was always a big supporter of ours. So that worked out well. Now, as we mentioned originally, CRV stood for coordinate remote viewing. Yes. And what would happen is the tasker would give a viewer a set of geographical coordinates, you know, such and such latitude and longitude, and then the viewer would go there. But that's not typically done anymore. And these days, CRV stands for controlled remote viewing yes. because it's 
it's done in a series of stages um, where you get different types of information about the site. The shift or an important moment in the shift between coordinate and controlled remote viewing occurred in April of 1985, and you played a role in changing that. Tell me what happened. Why did it stop being coordinate remote viewing? Well, what we did, we went from coordinates, and then we figured, well, the problem with coordinates, if you tell me this is six degrees north, my mind's going to say, it's going to be cold here, or if it's on the equator, it's going to be warm. So we're starting to to put the left brain into action. So what we did was we had a uh, a random number generator. And so we would take the coordinates, put it into the random number generator, which would kick out a random number. So and it was we would it use was, that number. This was encrypted coordinates at right. the time. It'd be so. an encrypted coordinate, yeah. Yeah. One day we were going and working and there were several things going on. I was going back and forth. I just got back from being down at the CIA headquarters and got back and came in and uh, I think it was Ed came running in and he was going to do a target. He said, Bill, I need the coordinates for this target. And so I sat down and wrote down the series of numbers and gave them to him. Just <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> so um so it went from actual geographic coordinates to then an yes. encrypted form so encrypted. they weren't, weren't recognizable. Right. And then one day you were just too busy and just wrote down random stuff and said, use Try that, this. and it worked. Yeah, just leave me alone, go do this. <laughs> and it, 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 I think it's, it's the intent of the viewer to fulfill the taskers, the tasking. And uh, that, that that's what we all use now. It's, it's pretty much you can come up with something specific to the target, specific to the date, and and we, we haven't had a problem. So it continues to work just based on the intention of the tasker, even right. though the coordinates are just random random letters yeah. and numbers at this point. Yeah, yeah. which we assign to a, a, a manila folder, and we put the target inside the manila folder. So we've established a link of some sort. But it's uh, now another thing. Anybody. Another thing that happened in April of 1985, specifically on April 7th, was you had a very powerful viewing session. Uh, yes. What can you tell me about that and what happened? And that will serve as our cliffhanger for this episode. Jimmy, what will Major Ray be telling us about when we pick up next time? He'll be telling us about one of the most dramatic remote viewing experiences he ever had. The target was a mass UFO abduction in the Gulf of San Matias, Argentina. And as we'll hear, the fear that Major Ray experienced in the viewing was so great that he still feels visceral fear when he thinks about the event today. But he's going to read us his original remote viewing results of the experience. We'll also be hearing about his experiences remote viewing Roswell and the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll be discussing his Catholic faith and how he understands it in relationship to remote viewing. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer? We'll have uh, Paul Smith's book, 
Reading the Enemy's Mind, which is a history of the Stargate program. Also, Ed Dames's book, Tell Me What You See. Uh, we'll have a an article that appeared about Bill Ray's retirement with video where he came back to uh, where he lives from Afghanistan. Also, uh, information on controlled remote viewing by Paul Smith and also extended remote viewing by Paul Smith, as well as an image of the Kremlin so you can see how visually distinctive it is and information about about General James Dozier, who was kidnapped, uh, Lieutenant General William Odom, who opposed the Stargate program, and the Typhoon-class submarine. Excellent. All right. So, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Well, since we're talking about remote viewing, which is sometimes classified as uh, an additional sense that humans might have, we have a theme for Mysterious Headlines of the world as viewed through other senses. And just recently, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded for to uh, some scientists for discovering the mechanism that is used in two rather obvious senses, but at least one of them is not often recognized. Um, the two senses are temperature and touch. And we've known for some time that these senses are mediated by nerves in our skin, but they actually found the relevant kinds of nerves. And yes, they are different. So temperature is really a different sense than touch, than pressure. And so, um, so and we have different kinds of nerves that do that, uh, that perform those functions. So that's something interesting to check out, but also very interesting. We'll have links to two videos. One about the world as we would see it if we could see into the infrared part of the spectrum. And also the wor a second video on the world as we would see it if we could perceive it in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. So those are the two areas that are closest on the on the electromagnetic spectrum to visible light. Um, red has the lowest frequency of visible light. So um, infrared is is less in frequency than visible red. And then at the other end of the spectrum, violet has the highest frequency of uh, of visible light. And so ultraviolet is just beyond the violet in terms of it's an even higher frequency. And um, it turns out even though humans don't really see infrared and ultraviolet, other creatures do. And that has an impact on how the world looks. And these are really fascinating videos. I uh, I watch both of them myself. It's really interesting stuff, including uh, one of the subjects that gets discussed is um, what plants would look like on might look like on alien planets, depending on the type of sun they have, because obviously the plants here on Earth have evolved to receive energy from our sun. And there's a reason that most plants are green as opposed to some other color, but it would be different on other planets. So check out these two videos. They're really fascinating on the world in infrared and the world in ultraviolet. They're both on YouTube. And by the way, while you're on YouTube, be sure and stop by my channel and uh, remember to uh, like, comment, and especially subscribe. I'm trying to grow my channel. We're getting near 25,000 subscriptions. So please do subscribe and hit the bell notifications. We're also uh, now doing 
videos, posting the videos of the podcast on other platforms like Rumble and BitChute and Odyssey. Uh, we're doing an experiment with that. So if you'd like to see us there, also, if that's one of the, if those are the platforms you prefer, be sure and uh, stop by and also subscribe there. Very good. Excellent. So that's it from us. What are your theories about remote viewing and what Major Ray has told us about his career? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week, Major Ray will be telling us about some of his most dramatic remote viewing experiences, including that massive simultaneous alien abduction, Roswell, and the Ark of the Covenant. Excellent. I want to remind you all to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World's page on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter and share it wherever you can to help us grow our audience. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearventoLaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Raising the Bets. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S.